Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week I'm very pleased to be joined by the crime writer Donna Leon, whose new novel is either the 27th or 28th, <laughs> Donna herself can't quite remember, of her Commissario Brunetti series, and it's called Unto Us A Son Is Given. Welcome, Donna. Now, you're an American writer, but you're an American writer in Venice, and you've written all these novels about a Venetian detective. What, what does Venice, as a sort of setting, first of all, give you, do you think, as a, as a writer? It gives the advantage, in, in a way it's an aesthetic, moral one, that people are prone to associate goodness with beauty, virtue with beauty. When we see beautiful people, we assume that, that for some reason we don't understand, they're good. And when we see ugly people, we sort of think they're bad. And if you look at movies, you see this. The heroine is always pretty, and the, the, the second woman, the temptress, is less pretty. Venice is arguably the most beautiful city in the world. And so the idea of presenting crime there is a paradox. It's a, it's a conflict between beauty and ugliness good and bad. And I think that this is an advantage because people are prepared to be surprised. This shouldn't be happening here. Oh, things like that happen in Detroit, but they don't happen in Venice. And yet in the books they do. Actually, they don't happen in Venice, but in the books they do. Uh, There's also that sense of Venice being a small town. I was wondering how how much it, it... it helps you to ha- to be able to have. I think you've got a lovely line in there about how gossip is the kind of lymph that flows through Venice's body politic. That's absolutely true. But it is in any small place. I would I would venture that it's it's possible here in London, in a small neighborhood that has remained uh, demographically the same for some years. If people are living where their grandparents live, then they know everybody. The secret in Venice is that people know everybody because they've lived there for three or four hundred years. Yeah, so br- they know people's great-grandparents and what they did. There's a lovely bit where Brunetti, just somebody else who's involved in the story, he's like, oh, I recognize him from the barbershop. Yeah, yeah, of course. You, I know a lot of people who I don't know. That is, I've seen them on the street. I've watched them age. I've watched their children grow up. I've watched their dogs apparently die and be replaced by other dogs, and yet I have no idea who those people are. We do, however, after a couple of years, begin to nod to one another, and then after another couple of years, we begin to say bon dia. But but none of us knows who the other person is. And I like that. I like that very much. And can you set out a bit for the listeners? What's the jumping-off point for this particular novel? I have a friend who inherited her great-aunt's estate because the great-aunt did not want to have to leave it to some of her relatives that she didn't like. Italian law sets up to whom you will must leave your wealth. Yeah, I was surprised by that with percentages, kind yeah, of. Yeah, 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 yeah. Your, 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 your wife or husband, your children, in, in an established percentage, and then at the end you get something I don't know, 25% or... I think it's 25% to give where you... to to the dog hospital, if you choose, or to your lover, if you choose. But in this case, her great-aunt didn't like her brothers and sisters or their children, so she gave all of the money to her... my friend and her grandniece by adopting her. 
Although her parents were still alive, the Italian law says that if the real parents of the person consent to the adoption, and there's 18 years of difference, you can adopt that person. And then the money leaps over the ensuing generations and goes to the person, all of it goes to the person who is now your child. And when I heard about this law, I thought, Woo-wee! Wow, there's mischief in the making. Because then you can seduce either physically or affectively or emotionally, or you can black, blackmail perhaps someone into making you their child if you want to. And that, of course, is exactly what happens at the beginning ah, of this book, or at least a mischief. Mischief happens, but yeah. Brunetti has, it's a sort of family friend, you could call him, isn't he, who is towards the end of his life and he's about to adopt yeah. this character they're all very suspicious of. Yeah, and it turns out that perhaps they, they are not incorrect. But it's understandable in an old person who is solitary, who has no relatives, what will he or she do with the wealth? In this case, the guy hasn't seen his family for years. He's estranged from his families, but his money is going to go to them. The only way he can get around this is to give it to someone that he loves. And the only way to do that, other than siphoning the money off bit by bit, by bit as the years pass, to give to the young man who might well be his lover, is to, is to give him large bits, large pieces of cash. And that becomes in Italy. That's very difficult now because you, they're, they're, they're clamping down on the exchange in, in cash. And so one way he can do it to assure it is to adopt this young man. And then he gets, he gets the lot. He's the son. Now, Brunetti, I mean, I wouldn't say you've adopted him, but you've got a very long relationship yeah, with Brunetti himself. Yeah. What, what are things, you know, people are sort of, used to reading crime fiction, you expect your detectives to be, you know, drunken, dark, mm -hmm. solitary. And Brunetti, he's, he's not, he's not at all. Things, yeah. Was that a conscious thing? Because he's, yeah. he's a loving family man, he's well-read, yeah. he's well-balanced. I mean, I'll have a glass of wine at lunchtime. But That was yeah. luck, because we talk now in the midst of Book 28, but Brunetti was invented. Brunetti is not a real person, I interrupt this program to announce. <sighs> He was invented 30 years ago, and at the time I had the good sense to make him someone that I would like, that I would like as a friend or as a relative or a husband or in anything. I wanted him to be an appealing person to me, and so I wanted to exclude... Was that because you knew you'd be in the, in the long haul? You no, no, no. I was, yeah. I was writing one, one book to see if I could write a book. The whole thing was a joke. It was dumb luck when I asked myself, I wonder if I could. So I just wanted to write one to see if I could. I had no thoughts of publication because publication didn't come until almost three years later. But I realized that I would be spending however long it took to write a book. How long does it take to write a book? I don't know. I never wrote a book. Six months, eight months, a year. It, it, took, it ended up taking almost a year. But I was going to spend it in the company of this man. And I didn't want an alcoholic, a misogynist, a philanderer, a brute, a man who sat and watched television and drank beer and didn't change his underwear every day. I just didn't want to be in the company of someone like that, as I would not in my life want to be in company with someone like that. And so I gave him the qualities that I found attractive in a man. And luckily I did that because the books caught on, and here I am 20 years later, not stuck with the alcoholic. 
if books become successful, it's very difficult to divorce that man from your life. Arthur Conan Doyle found out to his cost, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. As many writers have found out to their cost. Uh, I, luckily, I prevented that by, by making him sim- simpatico. Has your relationship with him changed over the years? No, it hasn't. He has become, as have I, more socially and politically cynical and pessimistic. But personally, both of us remain pretty cheerful people who value humor greatly and value humor in in friends and spend most of our time making wise-ass remarks. There's also a quality of the way in which Brunetti goes about his detection. It seems to me, it reminded me very slightly of Simonon, that quality of the characters who kind of go into a into a situation, and he's very, it's very often he's thinking about when not to say anything, mm-hmm. you know, kind of absorbing mm-hmm. things from around him. I mean, have you, do you feel yourself sort of being attracted, making, if you like, the process much more psychological than, say, you know, finding, you know, vital documents or confronting someone with a gun yeah, or whatever? Yeah, 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 because I think the intellectual is far more interesting than the physical. Certainly in a book it is, because we want to know what people are thinking. Because until we know what they're thinking, we don't know anything about them. And so by following his processes of thought, one comes to know him, rather than having him punch up somebody or go break into someone's house to look for the missing documents. I I find all of that sort of uninteresting. I, I want to know what people are thinking, and I want to follow processes in understanding other people, because that's what he's always trying to figure out. Why did the person who did this crime do it? What motivated that person? But it's the same thinking that he carries to a dinner table conversation. He's always wondering what's leading people to say or do things. And that sort of why-done-it aspect, do you... I mean, I'm always curious, particularly about people who write crime or suspense novels, how they go about... You know, you had the MacGuffin, you had this adoption thing, but Mm -hmm. do you know from the beginning... Absolutely not. Who, who's going to be the no, baddie? No, why why, no, why they've done it? No, I don't know anything. Tabula rasa. I had this law. I knew about the law from my friend Christina. And I thought, well, it, it has to be an older person. So it wouldn't, it probably would be Brunetti's friend, but there's got to be a way that Brunetti would know him. So I thought, aha, Paola's family, because they're rich, they're well-connected. So all of a sudden the character had so Paola being Brunetti's wife. Paola, yeah, yeah, Brunetti's wife's... Brunetti's father-in-law, who is Conte Falier and, and enormously wealthy and well-connected. He would have a friend who would be a possible victim of someone who's looking... someone who's on a money hunt. And so the connection to Brunetti, the personal connection to Brunetti could be that. And Brunetti wouldn't take this on unless it were a personal matter. He wouldn't be interested in this unless it were someone who was effectively close to someone in the family. But I didn't know that when I started the book. Has, you know, you have Brunetti's sort of family around him, as you say, you know, as Paolo, as his his father-in-law. Do you feel like you've got a sort of tier of characters who are sort of, as it were, the furniture? Mm Mm-hmm, sure. Who you won't... Yeah, yeah. Won't tinker with. And do they do they change over time? I mean, does does Brunetti age in real time, for instance? 
no, nobody's getting older. The, the kids should be, the kids should, by now should be in their 40s and they're still in school. So either they're very slow or I'm cooking the books. But the passage of time, I think, is permissible because there's no carbon dating. There are a few references in the books, in any of the books, and this has been accidental and lack of interest on my part, there's no reference to the Twin Towers, there's no reference to this soccer victory, this politician, that politician, that problem, that, that historic event, which would date the book, so that five books after that book, you'd know that it would have to be 2000 and something. There's none of that in these books. So I could argue, well, there are five books a year. So only six years have passed in the Brunetti life because I'm spending a long time examining every event. I could do that, but I just don't, I don't bother with any of that. Time isn't passing. And do you ever feel, I mean, time, time isn't passing, you're writing more of these books, do you feel ever, you know, I want to do something that I can't do with Brunetti? Do you ever think, because I mean, for Robert B. Parker, for instance, who had Spencer, mm-hmm. you know, he started doing his side projects, you know, Jesse Stone and yeah, Sonny Randall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, do you sometimes want to do another detective or somebody no, different? I don't have the time. I'm very deeply involved in a, a Baroque orchestra, Il Pomodoro, and that means I go to the recordings. I go to, I go from here to the, to a recording of uh, Vinci arias, and I'm missing because I'm here. I'm missing the recording of the Bach harpsichord concerti, and I mind that desperately. Well, we're especially grateful to you. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm I'm not I'm not begging for compassion in my hard life. But that takes up enormous amounts of my time because I also go to them, I, also, I follow them in tournée. They'll be, they'll be back here in uh, May 31st with Handel's Agrippina with Joyce Di Donato. So I'm, I'm at the performances in Barcelona, Madrid, Paris, and London. And then I will be at the recording for a week. And so that's two weeks of my life that goes to music, and that happens all the time. So I don't have the time to write another book. Do you see crime writing as a sort of day job then? And the that that being what you do for love or No, it's fun. It's great fun. And when it's not I'll stop. Because if it's not fun for me, it's not gonna be fun for well, me. Well I wondered I suspected that you weren't going to stop because you have a a very sort of piercing passage about the idea of retirement in it. Oh the very thought. <laughs> Pass me the razor, really. I mean, one of the most kind of, you know, shudder-making bits is where Brunetti thinks, you know, oh, this old guy, you know, he retired and suddenly he sort of dwindles and vanishes. Yeah, but I think we've all seen this with, I think the statistics of, of mortality after people in the first year of retirement are astronomical because people who have done this for their life all of a sudden find themselves not only unemployed, maybe with a good or a bad pension, but without that, that significant other thing, the thing by which they have defined themselves for so many years, they're all of a sudden not the town butcher, or they're not sweeping the streets, or they're not having the contacts, the work contacts that they have. And I think for many people that's devastating. Do you think that... I mean, I, it's, you know, sometimes when I talk to crime writers, they go... You know, why are we stigmatized as if crime writing is a lesser thing? Do you well, we find, should be because it's a lesser thing. Come on. Now, let's be real about this. This is crime fiction. That's interesting. You, don't, you, you feel like crime fiction doesn't have the range of literary fiction? Absolutely not. 
How can it? It's limited to crime. Look at, look at Jane Austen. Name a crime in Jane Austen. She didn't need that crutch. Nobody gets killed. Oh, do you see it as a crutch? Nobody gets slapped. Yeah, of course it's a crutch. Because you, have mani- you, you are reading people who are being manipulated by the desire to find out who done it. And Jane Austen didn't need that because she was a genius. Dickens used it occasionally, but the books do other things. But your books certainly do other things. I mean, yeah, they do other in, things, but they're, st- they're still one, using the crutch of crime. It doesn't seem to be the prime. In it's some why. ways, isn't the prime. It's thing. why. It's why yeah, yeah, it's why done it. But still, there is the the impetus of the crime, because there's usually a crime to figure out. And without the crime, maybe these books could stand on their own. But it, one thing a writer has to do is get the reader to go from page one to page two to page three to page four. And one way to do that is curiosity. They can be interested in the characters. They can be interested in the setting. They can be interested in some enigmatic mystery, like the Aspern Papers, in which no one is killed. I was going to say, you thread some Henry James into this. I mean, there's a sort of... The Henry James and the Trojan women seem to be the two kind of yeah. literary yeah, presidents yeah. in the background. Because yeah. I, I was reading the Trojan women at the time, and, and I was devastated by that. So it, it, it couldn't not come into the book. And, and there's lots of crime there. But I think that crime fiction does have this peculiarity. And I'll call them real books. I think that literature, real novels, don't need it and can survive without it. They, do they, well, they don't never have it, though, at all, do they? I mean, there's always something drawing you on. But in, in, in Jane Austen, you never even get a raised voice. And yet the, the novels Austin, are compelling. Surely you've got the say, there's a suspense element because it's who's going to marry her. I mean, I, the, but not who's going to kill her. Not who's <laughs> going to who kill her, her. But in, except, of course, the Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which is a whole different matter. But Pride and Prejudice? Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Oh, I missed that one. Sorry. Jane Austen spin-offs. But, um, I mean, I, Kurt Vonnegut, I remember saying somewhere, he says he never puts romance into his books because he says by the end of it, the sky can be kind of black with flying saucers mm-hmm. and the reader will only care about whether the guy gets to kiss the girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, doesn't I'm trying to think of literary novels that don't have any sort of suspense element. Do you think there are? Maybe tro- no, Trollop has suspense, but it's 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 a different kind of suspense. It's who's going to win or who's going to be in, who's going to be out. Oh, sort of feel like you're putting yourself down a little bit here. No, no, um, no, 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 no. I'm not putting myself down, and I'm not putting crime writing down at all because I am not setting up two categories of good and bad, better and 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 good and better. I'm merely saying that the elements of crime fiction create a more visceral kind of curiosity in the reader because I think a reader would would really want to know who's been bludgeoned to death with the with the leg of lamb more than who has been betrayed by her husband or his wife. Who are the other crime writers you admire? I mean, do you read other crime writers, or did you I, did you start I writing did, yeah. crime novel because you loved? When I was in writer? when I was in graduate school, working on a thesis and a doctor a doctoral thesis, a dissertation in Jane Austen, I was reading at night when I went home because I couldn't I couldn't really concentrate much after a heavy day with Jane. I read Ross Macdonald because of the prose because he writes so beautifully well, Chandler 
for the same reason. And I think MacDonald has the gift of plot. Chandler yes, never really quite got around plots, to. He yes. was so busy with the, with the wonderful one-liners. I read Hammett. I read Robert B. Parker because he made me laugh so much. He's just so, so terribly funny. I still, yes, I wish I, he was better known here. I still will write Eek because his, his friend, the black guy. Hawk. Hawk, who's about nine feet tall and weighs 300 pounds of muscle. Whenever anyone threatens him, he says, eek! <laughs> and it always makes me laugh. And Dickens. I think Dickens is a great crime writer. Bleak House is a crime novel. Even though it, doesn't, it, it isn't sold as that, but it is a crime novel. So we had Sarah Paretsky here last year, and Sarah was saying that when she started, she felt crime writing, you know, it was so much a boy's game mm-hmm. that it was hard to kind of get a foot in the door and so she was conscious I mean did you have that feeling when you were starting out that this was something that was going to be hard to break into or something that was see the the difference is that I didn't want it it found me I'm here because of dumb luck that story is God's truth I was in the dressing room at La Fenice Gabriele Ferro and his wife and I talked about another conductor and one of us got the idea of killing him in there in the dressing room and I said my God great idea for a murder mystery and I wrote it and then it sat in a drawer for two years because I wanted to write the book and then I wasn't interested someone persuaded me to send it to a, a competition in Japan and six months later came back a letter saying that I was a, a nominee for the prize and I went to Japan and I won bingo and then somebody bought the book Harper Collins bought the book but I didn't have the, that was not my goal in writing the book so I'm ambitionless. I've never had any ambition about for anything. I just want I have just wanted to have a whole lot of fun. And I have. <laughs> and I've been very, very lucky in life. And are you still big in Japan? I don't know. <laughs> I don't sure. so, since you write, you know, stories that are set in Venice, I'm curious to know, how does Brunetti go down in Italy? He doesn't because they're not printed in Italy. They're not printed in Italy. I don't want to be famous where I live. I'm not interested in these things. Are Italian publishers Say, I mean, have Italian publishers say, yeah, I'd like to publish these, yeah, and you yeah, say, yeah, yeah. I say, no, no, thank you. no. And it's easy because it's the same word in Italian and English. They, un- <laughs> they understand. Oh, fantastic. And the, um, just before we were coming in, you were saying there was no danger. You've, you've moved to Switzerland for most of the year, mm-hmm. but you were saying there's no danger in going back to the States. I mean, no. No. That's, that's the same word in every language. No. <laughs> no, I don't want to go back. I haven't lived there for 50 years live there permanently. I've gone back for work, gone back to see friends, gone back to see my family. But uh, I haven't, I think it's five years since I've gone. In 10 years, I've gone twice. This, the opera's better in Europe. We can note to end on. Donna Leon, thank you very much indeed for your time. You're very welcome. We hope you enjoyed that book's podcast. If you did, I very much hope that you'll subscribe to us on your podcast provider and if you liked it especially if you liked it please rate and review it very favorably indeed we also have a special offer we can provide a 20 pound john lewis voucher if you subscribe to 12 issues of the magazine for just 12 pounds so that's practically an eight pound bribe to read the wonderful spectator for 12 weeks running and you just need to go to spectator co uk forward slash voucher 